0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico.
1: We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 36. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons from Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, garns his own palace, his goods are safe but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusts and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit had gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast on which you are nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowd were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repent Repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold something greater than Jonah is here No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket But on a stand so that those who enter may see the light Your eye is the lamp of your body when your eye is healthy Your whole body is full of light But when it is bad your body is full of darkness Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be woolly bright, as when a lamp, when its rays give you light. This is the word of the Lord
0: pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for your son, Jesus, who has taught us these things. We are thankful for your servant, Luke, who has written down these things. We are thankful for your Holy Spirit, who preserves these things and who makes these things uh, settle deeply in our heart. Holy Spirit, we believe in your power. We pray that you would do a great work in and amongst your people tonight. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, good evening, everyone. You may be seated. Uh, Did you guys notice when Joel was reading about casting demons out, this microphone started, like, being really creepy? Uh, We'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, Good evening. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you. There are a lot of young folks with us, some of you young to mid-20, 28-year-olds that I haven't met, and I'd love to meet you after the service if I haven't. Uh, maybe meet you for lunch or coffee or sometime something sometime in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I just got back last weekend. I was not here. Kyle preached just an excellent, excellent sermon last Sunday that I listened to on the podcast. I got—I was— on a long hot hike through the middle of the Pecos wilderness looking for something that might as well be unicorn. Uh, They're called elk. I don't think that they actually exist uh, because I didn't see any, but that's the way it goes. Uh, I've never been a hunter until just a couple of years ago, and I don't know if I would call myself a hunter uh, other than BB guns. I don't think that i would ever even like shot any firearm until a couple of years ago. Uh, Just when I moved to Albuquerque, yes, I know, like what kind of Texan am I really had I not shot a gun until I moved to New Mexico. But as many of you know, before you ever pick up a gun, before you ever pick up a rifle strong enough to bring down like an 800-pound elk, you have to establish some ground rules, some non-negotiable norms and expectations, things like uh, two words that I had never heard put together before a few years ago of muzzle control. You know, just pretending like there is a laser coming out of the end of a rifle and you would never cross this laser in, across anything that you wouldn't want to cut in half with that laser. You never aim your rifle at anything that you don't intend to destroy. And why is it that before you pick up something like that, do you have to think so carefully, so responsibly, so diligently? Well, because life and death is at stake. Something this powerful requires that we treat it respectfully. Something this powerful demands that we, dare I say, treat it fearfully. It has the power to do what it was intended to do. Well, last week Kyle kept us going with a theme that Luke had been developing over the past couple of chapters of Luke's Gospel on discipleship. What it means to follow Jesus. We saw Mary at the end of chapter 10 portrayed as an ideal disciple who sits at Jesus' feet. Unlike the lawyer who the week prior, we saw two weeks ago, who stood up in confrontation of Jesus, Mary, like we are to in her footsteps, sit at Jesus' feet and learn from Him. But what makes Jesus a teacher? What makes Jesus a Messiah worth sitting at the feet of? How do we know that he is trustworthy to sit at the feet of, to learn from, to become like, to make our entire lives about following him? Why should you sit at Jesus's feet? This section in Luke 11 is all about the power of Jesus and the response, our response to the power of Jesus. Is Jesus who he says he is? And if so, what does that require from us? And so that's how we're going to think through this passage passage tonight in two halves, trying to ask and answer two questions. What does the power of Jesus reveal? And what does the power of Jesus demand? What does it reveal about him? And then what does it demand from us? So first of all, what does the power of Jesus reveal? Here in verse 14 of Luke 11, we have another instance of Jesus casting out a demon from a man. The man was made mute by the demon, and after Jesus cast it out, the man could then speak again. But the details of that story are not at all Luke's point, so we're not going to spend much time on that either. The people are marveling at what Jesus had done. And yet this isn't the first time that we've seen this description from Luke in a way that isn't necessarily positive. You'd think that if the people were marveling at Jesus, this was a good thing. But we saw back in chapter 4 when Jesus first preached at his home synagogue, Luke tells us that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. And yet, immediately after marveling at Jesus's authoritative and wise teaching, they immediately question him. They're asking, is this not Joseph's son? Like, who is this guy? They're marveling, but they're not submitting themselves to him. The same kind of questioning is happening here in chapter 11. They're undoubtedly amazed. They are marveling. But some of them said, verse 15, that he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Beelzebul was an ancient Canaanite god whose name loosely translated is Lord of the Flies. Where William Golding got the name of his book, showing the the base instincts of humans, even of young children, being that of selfishness. The base instinct being even that of violence against each other. It seems likely that by this time in the first century, the Jews were using this name Beelzebul as either a stand-in name for Satan, the evil one, or they thought of Beelzebul, that ancient Canaanite God, as one of Satan's chief demons. And so that accusation against Jesus is that while he appears to be doing good things, really his power is demonic. The things that Jesus is doing are clearly of spiritual origin of an unseen origin. There is no physical. There is no biological. There is no psychological. There is no medical explanation for what Jesus continues to do over and over again. And so his power and his authority show that he does have some very real spiritual authority, which is what we've been saying his healing ministry has always been about anyway, right? He uses the miraculous, yes, because he is compassionate, because he is gracious. He sees Uh, hardship. He sees people hurting, and he is moved to mercy. He is moved to compassion. He genuinely desires the physical healing of the afflicted. But if that's what Jesus's ministry was always about, just healing the sick, just providing for the poor, well, he didn't actually do a really, really great job at that, did he? He was constantly removing himself from the sick. He was constantly removing himself from the poor to go to be alone, to pray, to be with his disciples for long stretches just to teach them. He was constantly taking time to didactically teach truths about God, about the world, about sin, about the human heart, about the internal, when he could have been just using that time to just heal more external. Can the kinds of people who Jesus would later heal know and trust God even in the midst of their present sufferings? Could the paralyzed man, in chapter four, before Jesus healed him, trusted God before Jesus' healing? Could the woman with the high fever, could the woman with the long-term bleeding, could a man with a withered hand know and trust God without a physical healing? Yes. Does their later healing fix their biggest problem? Not necessarily. How many people who are not paralyzed don't know and trust God? How many people without a fever, without chronic health conditions, without functioning hands, many, if now not most in the world, don't suffer from these kinds of particular afflictions and are still not trusting in the Lord. These miracles have always been about showing Jesus's spiritual authority, not necessarily relieving very real, but temporary suffering. Remember the, we talked about two weeks ago, the the lesser to the greater. If this lesser thing is true, then how much greater will the greater thing be true? Jesus made that argument when he healed the paralyzed man. When he asked, which is harder for me to say that your sins are forgiven or to take up your bed and walk? He's saying it's actually harder for someone to forgive sins. But he says, but to show you that I have the authority on earth to forgive sins, the harder thing, let me show you the easier thing. And so many saw that Jesus clearly had spiritual authority, the harder thing, but they were unwilling to recognize that that authority came from God because to say that his authority, while spiritual, while otherworldly, if it came from God, then what must you do with that? What must you do with Jesus's teaching? What must you do with Jesus's authority? Well, you have to listen to it. You have to submit to it. If we say, if the people say that he is a prophet, maybe he is much more, then I'll need to listen to and obey everything he's saying. And I don't want to do that, the crowds seem to be saying. So I'm just going to stick my fingers in my ear, assume that he's not from God. He's clearly got some spiritual authority, but we can maybe say he's someone, he he has this authority not from God, so therefore I don't have to listen to it. And if I don't have to listen to it, then no response is required. Remember the lawyer from two weeks ago, when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, the lawyer came to Jesus essentially asking, how can I remain justified? How can I remain right before God by changing nothing in my life, by having my life exactly the way that I want it and I demand it to be? If Jesus does not come with heavenly authority, then I'm not required to listen. But the second skepticism about Jesus was just as frustrating. The first said that his power was demonic, so I can ignore him. But verse 16, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Despite all they'd seen, even this formerly mute man sitting right here with them, that they were marveling at, even that was not enough. We're not quite sure what this sign from heaven might have been that they were demanding, likely something in the sky. Like he needed to, like, order up a solar eclipse right now, or maybe recreate another Joshua in the sun standing still in the sky moment or something like that. Regardless, whatever Jesus might have shown them, like Israel in the wilderness, one miracle after one miracle after one miracle after another miracle would never be enough. They weren't about knowing and trusting in the character of God who would provide, but they just wanted the magic shows to continue. They wanted for every curiosity and every appetite to be satisfied, for him to provide more bread, for him to provide more things, for him to do more interesting, magical things. A second century Roman poet once said that if you give the people bread and circuses, they will never revolt. Meaning if you fill their appetites, if you keep their bellies full and if you keep them entertained by the show, they'll stay quiet and submissive, full bellies, and interesting entertainment. And we'd never answer this on a theological exam, but how many of us functionally, functionally believe that the meaning of life is full bellies and entertainment? It's been this way from the beginning. But verse 17, he knowing their thoughts said to them, and ironically here, they wanted a sign, and his knowledge of their inner thoughts actually reveals one. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. This is one of Jesus' most famous sayings. Abraham Lincoln famously used that saying in a campaign speech when he was running for Senate. And we pretty regularly uh, see that saying, a divided household, on bumper stickers or in yard signs, like you see a UNM and a New Mexico State yard sign, a house divided. These signs are all over the country showing a married couple who either went to different schools or or now root for different professional sports teams. But every time I see one, I'm like, oh, why? Because Jesus says every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. So this like Michigan, Ohio State household and marriage is like, completely falling apart inside, and the people are putting out a yard sign to show everybody how it's like late waste inside. Because that's Jesus's point. Not just that the spiritual world agrees on everything else in life, and then the spiritual world like once a year for three hours root at different moments for like a three-hour time of like watching a football game or something. But that the entire interests of the spiritual world, of light and darkness, are in competition with each other all the time, all year round, all millennia round. Lincoln's use of the phrase was more appropriate than perhaps New Mexico or UNM and New Mexico State. Lincoln said, I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. Why? Because he says it will become all one thing or all the other. Or in Jesus' words elsewhere, you cannot serve two masters. A household cannot serve two masters. Jesus is saying that Satan's entire year-round, entire millennia-round interest is to bring death, is to bring destruction, is to bring suffering, is to bring exile from God. And yet here, Jesus is doing exactly the opposite. It's clear that Jesus' interests are different, are in direct competition with that of Satan's. If Jesus is really working for and through the power of the demonic, he's doing a very bad job. He is bringing no death. He is bringing no destruction. He is bringing no suffering. He is bringing no exile from God, but the opposite. He is drawing people into life and light. He is drawing people into nearness to God. And the longer So the accusation goes, if he's working for the demonic, the longer his really, really bad demonic work goes on, the demonic interests will fall apart because the house is divided. He's not doing what the house of the demonic demands. But Jesus says, verse 10, if it is the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This finger of God is a phrase that is used many times in the Old Testament, but perhaps... uh, reminding us here of the time when Moses touched the Nile River. The finger of God touched the Nile and turned the Nile into blood. God was doing what Pharaoh's magicians could not. These are not magic tricks that Jesus is doing. He's not there to just show the people the power of God, that's true, But he has come to lead his people out from slavery and to deliver them into the promised land of God's presence. The invisible kingdom of God has now become visible in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying here, believe me or reject me. I am doing otherworldly spiritual work. I do have otherworldly spiritual authority. But the spiritual work is not demonic work. We know that because I'm not doing demonic work. So it follows that the work is from God. And then Jesus tells a one-sentence parable of a strong man, perhaps giving us the picture of like a, a mob boss in some like huge Miami estate or something. And inside this estate, the mob boss has a safe of millions and millions in cash. He's got Jets and helicopters, Bentleys and Maseratis everywhere. The place is very clearly well protected and guarded. Until what happens? Until federal agents who might as well be like military special forces show up and take the whole thing down. They seize the cash. They take the helicopters and the cars. Jesus is saying that the demonic realm, the power and the order that loves to keep the world in blindness and in darkness, it has this whole horde of goods of riches, of protected power that seems impenetrably guarded. There is no way in and there is no way to bring down the darkness of this world until someone stronger comes on the scene and takes the whole thing down. Several years ago, we worked our way through Paul's letter to the Colossians, where in chapter 2, Paul says... He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. The, world, the word disarmed is more literally stripped. He stripped the rulers and the authorities. He disrobed, He defanged the rulers and authorities, and He put them to open shame by triumphing over them. How? Well, the verse before by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, by nailing it to the cross. The backlog of both conscious and unconscious sin, the experiential guilt and shame that we humans intuitively feel and understand of not being good enough, of not caring about the things that we should care about, of not doing the things that we should do, of not living up to our own standards, of not living up to God's standards. This is what holds humanity in bondage. In bondage both to shame and guilt, experientially felt, and in bondage to only keep choosing and only keep doing that death-bringing rebellion against God, against the good of ourselves, against the good of the world, against the glory of God who has created us. But here in Luke, Jesus hasn't done all that yet. His face is set toward Jerusalem, but he's not there yet. It's like the the feds are loading up their own helicopters, but they have not yet arrived at the strong man's house. But the supreme irony of the coming cross of Jesus is that he will strip, he will disrobe, he will bring the rulers and authorities to open shame as he himself is stripped, as he himself is disrobed, as he himself is lifted up in open shame. By all observation in the moment to be a place of utter defeat, the end of his life and the end of his ministry and the end of his supposed kingdom, not a triumph, but then like like a great judo master. On the cross, Jesus uses the momentum of his opponent The desire for ruling, the desire for autonomous power, and he flips him. He flips the enemy into open shame. The mystery of the gospel, that of power through weakness. Self-fulfillment through self-denial, life through death. And so back to Luke 11, Jesus may be pointing to the formerly mute man, but more likely understanding the mute man as a stand-in for all of Israel, and especially those antagonizers who are standing in front of him. He says in verse 24, he says, "...when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places. Seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came." And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Again, maybe pointing at the man whom he has just healed, but using these parables to sneak past the presumption of the entire crowd in front of him to say, you're the man, Jesus is saying, okay, I'm doing this work. I'm doing this like bad guy clearing work. I am clearing out the blinding, the death bringing spiritual forces of pride, of glory to self, of sin, of selfishness, and the rejection of God. I'm clearing out the rocks and the weeds of the field so that you might receive a different kind of spiritual guest within the heart — the home of your heart. I'm going in and cleaning the place up that you might receive a different spiritual guest. So the question that he's implicitly asking here is, I'm doing the cleaning. Will you receive a new guest? Will you receive me? Will you receive the helper, the Spirit, when he comes, who will sprinkle you clean and to take up a residence of renewal? That he might come and renovate the home of your heart slowly and surely? Or will you not respond? Will you just remain in a state of indifference and of disrepair? Will you remain in a state of implicitly welcoming the darkness to come back? There is actually no such thing as spiritual indifference. Indifference is rejection, which is what Jesus says in verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Will you be a gatherer or will you be a scatterer? Are you gathering in the good, the true, the right into your own heart, your mind, your soul and your strength? Are you sitting at Jesus' feet continually learning from Him? Learning His word, learning His ways, understanding the world to be more, more and more rejecting That for the life of Christ, rejecting all of the lies of the world that you might have, Jesus, learning God's promises, and despite your own fears, despite your own shame, despite your own anxiety and doubt, saying, but I will trust in the Lord. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever." Learning what it means to be a created being and understanding and humility that we do not have the right to declare whatever I want, whatever I feel, whatever I think I need is good and right and must be affirmed. That we are dependent creatures, not ultimate creators. That we are on the underside of the divine, not over. That we are more and more learning what it means to exhibit To show and to live love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And then gathering more and more people into the very same. Helping them in the same. Are you scattering the truth of Christ from your own heart and from others? Or are you bringing more of it in? Because indifference is scattering. It is waiting and inviting the darkness. It is being a a spiritual shark who by stop stopping moving forward sinks to the bottom. If you're not moving forward, you're moving backward. Now by his grace, by his overwhelming and immense grace, there is grace upon grace for when we inevitably begin sinking. When we begin when we stop moving forward. But not in long-term states, not in years that turn into decades, that turn into lifetimes. Jesus says the last state of that person, the state of the person who remains in indifference, who remains in a place of not replacing what has been uprooted by Christ with Christ himself, well, that state is far worse than the first. That state when the opportunity for permanent spiritual reversal is lost— When the opportunity for permanent spiritual renovation, permanent spiritual restoration is rejected and denied. And so what does the power of Jesus reveal? Simply this, that he is able to do what he says he can do. And because he is able to do what he says he can do, then he is trustworthy to follow him. If he has authority, he is exercising that authority wisely and for the good of those around him, then he has authority and that he is trustworthy to use that authority. He is stronger than the strong man. There is no spiritual darkness in your life that he cannot overcome. There is no spiritual habit or ongoing pattern in your life that he cannot renovate. There is no spiritual shame in your life that he cannot redeem. But a rifle or any other tool of real power, you can avoid those. I lived my whole life until like three years ago without having ever shot a rifle. You can live your whole life without certain tools. But if you pick up a rifle, if you pick up a miter saw, you need to understand what you are wielding. Even though you, when you are using these things, you need to understand them though, you are using these things, how and why? Why do we use any tools? Well, because we think that they'll benefit us in some way. If you don't really have a need for them, you can just choose to not pick them up. You can just choose not to use them. You can spend your whole life avoiding a miter saw. Just walk away. But if the power of Jesus reveals that he is strong and able, that he is mighty to save, and that he is trustworthy to follow, what does the power of Jesus demand? Secondly, verse 27, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, no, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The woman in the crowd is clearly responding well to Jesus. She is essentially saying, my goodness, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, you are a teacher from God. Your mother must be so proud of you. You bring honor to your mother. You bring honor to your family. She must have done something right in raising you, so blessed is she. To which Jesus interrupts and says, no, no, not blessed is she. She's my mother. That's great. I love her, but rather Let's not heap blessing onto her, but rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That is where blessing comes. In other words, those who do not treat me like a usable rifle or a usable miter saw, something useful if I meet a felt need for you, but those rather, blessed are those who hear and respond to everything I'm saying because of who I am. Not because of who you are and what you need, but in recognizing me for me. He's saying, and how do we know that he is saying, blessed are those who hear my words, when he's saying blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it? He could just be saying, maybe those who hear the Old Testament law and keep everything there. How do we know he's talking about his words? Well, Luke goes on. Verse 29, when the crowds were increasing. A sure sign, by the way, of some sort of conflict that is inevitably coming. Basically, for the rest of the way out in Luke, the crowds keep increasing, increasing, increasing. Conflict and ultimate climax is coming. But in verse 29, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now in Matthew's telling of this account, Matthew makes a connection to Jesus' coming death and resurrection. So just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so Jesus will be buried for three days and rise again. But that's not the point of what Luke is highlighting here. He says nothing about the fish. He says nothing about three days. What is the sign of Jonah in verse 29? Well, verse 30. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Ninevites likely knew nothing of the fish. At least as we read of the account of Jonah, he says nothing to the people of Nineveh. He basically just walks in and says, Certain and cataclysmic judgment is coming. He doesn't even really call them to repent. Just judgment is coming. The implication is that, like Nineveh, immediate repentance and response is required right here at this very moment, or else certain and coming cataclysm, judgment. That's the sign of Jonah, of judgment coming, implied repentance needed. Jesus goes on to tell of the Gentile queen of Sheba who comes to Solomon's court and upon hearing the wisdom of God, she blesses, she worships the God of Israel. Jesus is, summing, Jesus is telling all these things and then summing them all up by saying something greater than all of that is here. Something greater than Jonah, something greater than Solomon is here. If the queen of Gentile Africa responded to Solomon, you all, Israel, the people of God, should hear and respond to me today. If one of the most wicked cities, Nineveh, of one of the most wicked empires, Assyria, came to hear the word of the Lord and to respond, then you all, Israel, the people of God, should hear and respond to me today. You should know better when you hear God's word. But he's just going, he's just getting going. He goes on in verse 33 with a passage that again, Luke highlights differently than Matthew does. Matthew, in, begin, in putting this, uh, this whole thing of like, no one puts a lamp under a basket teaching, Matthew puts that at the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five. There, Matthew is highlighting the, the public and the persuasive ministry of Jesus and of his disciples, that they are to be salt and light for the world, that the world is to see their works, their good works, and then glorify God as a result. That's not quite what Luke is emphasizing here. Like Jonah, Jesus' teaching is public and persuasive. Verse 33, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Jesus is saying he isn't hiding what he's saying. He's not hiding who he is. He is wide open. He's teaching the crowds. Why? So that Israel might see, might hear the word of God and might, might enter in by his light. And then he goes on to explain an ancient Near East understanding of light and vision. Essentially, when he says the, the, the eye being the lamp of the body, essentially, we might think of, or the first century folks of this era, might think of their eyelids as like the lampshades on the window of their one room house. When the eyelid, when the window shade is open, then the light is lit for the rest of the body. It provides light both for the inside and it is an outward facing light for those on the outside. When the lamp shades or the, the window shades are open, there is light inside and out. But when the eyelid, when the window shade is closed, it is dark and there is now no light internally or externally, when your eye is healthy, when your eye is operating as it should, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, when it is faulty, when you are keeping your eyes closed, when your eyes are not working as they should, your body is full of darkness. We might paraphrase this as when the eye brings in light, the whole body glows. When the eye is bringing in light, the rest of the body glows. It is full of light and life. But when the eye brings in no light, the whole body remains in darkness. What's the point of all this? Jesus is going on with seemingly disconnected teachings here, there, and everywhere. He's essentially saying, there is no such thing as an inner light. Hear my words and respond to me now, today. Like the Ninevites. Like the Queen of Sheba. Do not trust your own instincts. Do not trust your own feelings. Do not trust your own desires. Hear the word of the Lord and respond. What did William Golding teach us when we were all eighth graders and we read The Lord of the Flies? What did William Golding teach us about our instincts, about our feelings, about our desires, the so-called inner light of every good human. What happens, chaos, when we trust the inner light of our own souls? Our instincts bring violence. Our feelings and our emotions bring nothing but death to ourselves and to others. The world today is telling you, perhaps even more heavy-handedly than in the first century, just to be who you want to be because The most important thing is your own mental health and the road to ultimately realize mental health is what? Just the celebration of yourself. That is how you will be most healthy, physically and mentally. And so if that's the case, then absolutely celebrate and elevate yourself over and against all else. That is the way to happiness. Trust yourself. Look, the world teaches you that the world is full of toxic people out there, there are toxic co-workers, toxic managers, toxic parents, toxic family members. Cut them all out of your life and just let your feelings be. The only reason that things are disordered in your life right now is because you are a victim of particular traumas or abuses of powers. Now many of those things may be absolutely true in our lives. And I didn't mean to just totally dismiss legitimate psychology, legitimate like cognitive behavior therapy or biblical counseling, but back to the demonic spiritual powers. 200 years ago, Dostoevsky once wrote in his novel, which he called Demons. He's describing a woman, and Dostoevsky wrote, The poor woman suddenly found herself or found herself the plaything of the most various influences, at the same time fully imagining herself to be original. Isn't that like the most apt description of the 21st century West? Finding herself the plaything of the most various influences and at the same time imagining ourselves to be original. You see how our Netflix shows, you see how our Instagram and TikTok feeds, our conversations at work or the gym or the park, all of these things are minimizing ourselves as moral agents who selfishly live for ourselves to the exclusion or to the ill of others. We maximize and highlight the good within. We minimize our own personal agency or guilt. We minimize our own character defaults or harms against others and then we maximize all of the harm and the bad out there, minimizing perhaps any kindness that we experience out there, minimizing all of the benefit that we experience from others, only the harm. And we're taught to never give anyone the benefit of the doubt. Jesus says, you guys, it's all rotten. All of it. It's all Lord of the Flies out there, and it is certainly all Lord of the Flies in there. It is chaos. It is violence. It is death. Culturally, societally, politically, you name it. And it is chaos. It is violence. It is death. Personally and within, you are choosing death over and over and over and over again. The lamp of your eye of the body is bad. You're trusting yourself. Open the shades and let me in. The only thing that will bring true health, the only thing that will bring peace, the only thing that will bring peace within and without is one who is stronger than all of that. Stronger than the strong man. And to not throw open the shades and to not take in the light of Christ is to stay in the darkness. Will you be a gatherer or will you be a scatterer? It's upside down. The whole thing is upside down. The way of Christ is not that you would celebrate and affirm yourself as you are but that you would deny yourself as you are and that you would celebrate and affirm who you would be in Christ. Or as Jesus told his disciples just before the transfiguration in chapter 9, remember when he said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? This passage has something for us all. If you're not a Christian, first of all, we are really glad that you're here tonight. So glad that you have come to encounter, perhaps this isn't why you came, but that you're encountering the words of Jesus. We hope that you keep visiting, we hope that you keep considering Jesus, but do not stay in indifference. Your creator knows you, your creator loves you, he desires your heart and he desires it tonight, today. As one pastor often says, the decision to follow Jesus is costly and therefore must be carefully considered. The decision to follow Jesus is urgent and therefore must be made and the decision to follow Jesus is worth it and therefore should be made. Would you carefully consider how living merely for the self, merely out of motivation for what you can see, for what you can touch, for what you can experience is Is that actually bringing any fullness in your life? Is the bread and circus all that we have to hope for? Or is there much, much more? What's more than that, Jesus is not just a rifle. Jesus is not just a miter saw, some extremely powerful tool to be used or to be walked away from. Instead, and I'm not even gonna use an illustration for what he might be in comparison to a miter saw, other than he is your king. God of God, light of light. He is the Lord, not of the flies, not where there is evidence of death and decay, but he is the Lord of life, and in his pastures is the aroma of well-being, of rest and of peace. And for you Christians, all of that is true. Everything that we just thought through and what I just said is true for you. How much more joy-filled, how much more pers- purposeful, how much more contented would our lives be if we really believed all of that to be true? A couple of weeks ago, Kyle reminded us that Jesus is only calling us to kill the things that are killing us. There's an old illustration of a, of a chimpanzee. And this chimpanzee gets his hand stuck in a crate because he's holding a coconut through the crate, he sees a coconut, he sticks his hand through the outer part of the crate, and he's holding on this coconut. And because who wouldn't want a coconut? That sounds great. But now he's stuck. He's not only holding a coconut, but he's got this crate stuck all over his arm and it's getting, it's hurting and he can't get the crate off of his arm. But the solution is is very easy. What must he do to get the crate off of his arm? Just let go of the coconut, that's it. Just let go and his arm slips right out. It seems so drastic and so decisive and he doesn't want to, but it's actually quite easy. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. Just trust him and let, it, let the things go. Throw open the shades. Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection has disarmed the evil one and he has brought him to open shame. He has lived for you and he has died for you that he might redeem you with a price, so that you no longer belong to yourself, but you belong to him. And if the eye brings in light, the whole body glows. Rely then on his precious blood. Don't fear your banishment from God since Jesus sets you free. Do not stay. Do not remain in a place of cleaned and tidied indifference. But invite him into every part of the home of your heart that his light might renovate it all. Drop the coconuts. They're killing you. What are they? Well, talk about these things this week at your dinner tables over coffee in your GCs and your D-groups and your smaller get-togethers. What are they and how do we drop them? Is he worth it? Is he good enough to drop them? Is he trustworthy to help us drop them? Is he trustworthy to give us light and life? Take my life and let it be, we're going to sing in just a moment, consecrated, set apart, made sacred, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. When the light, or when the eye of the light brings in light, the whole body glows in peace, in contentment, in growing satisfaction. I loved the prayer that Kyle read. I just wanna, well, I don't know how you're gonna get that to us. I just wanna think through when the appetite is, I don't remember what you said, more holy, the object of our appetite gets more satisfying. Oh, how much, how how would that be true? How might we grow in that this week? If our appetites, if our vision, if our hearing, if all of these things are more finely tuned to Jesus, that he might be more and more satisfying in our hearts, our minds, our soul, and our strength. Let's pray for God's help now that he would do that this week. Lord, we want to see you. We want to taste and see, as we thought about at the beginning of this service, we want to taste and see, Lord, that you are good, that you are satisfying that every appetite we have longs for something greater than what this world can give it, but it longs for you. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would hear you rightly, that we would see you clearly for who you are. You are not our therapist, you are not our counselor, you are not our doctor, though you give us all of those things, but you are our king. You are our shepherd who guides us into pastures of green grass, that we might lie there at your feet, satisfied by you, under your protection and in your kingdom of of grace and of peace and of truth. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be more and more a people who are gathering these truths into our own heart, who are gathering more and more people at the feet of your teaching, We want to be a people who are formed by you, shaped by you, and are learning from you. Might we also be a people who are inviting others into this reality as well for their good, for our encouragement, for the glory of our King Jesus, we pray in all of these things in his name, amen.
1: We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's
0: church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.